Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. This is God's word. All right, let us, uh, let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for the opportunity to come before you on, uh, on your day, this day that you have set aside strictly for this, strictly for your people to come together and to hear what you have for us. Um, God, we, we thank you for this passage of, from Galatians written by Paul's hand, this passage that has served the church for thousands of years. It's such a blessing to be able to dig into something that churches have been um, considering for so long and in so many different contexts. Uh, so Father, please bring it to life for us here today. Help us to understand it. Help me that I might just uh, decrease so that you might increase, and uh, may it be a blessing to all who hear um, and may we receive the assistance and aid of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, uh, we had kind of, a, kind of a treat of a guest service from uh, our good pal Thomas Duell, uh, who I don't even see in the building today. It's very disappointing. Uh, but Thomas ended his sermon last week. Uh, with the point, and I, I think I have the quotations right, uh, don't get too big for your britches, Mission Church. And uh, when I heard it, I immediately took offense to it because I thought it was some kind of shot at people who wear above average sized britches. Um, then I realized it was probably just some kind of Oro Valley slang that I didn't understand. But I think it was clear that what Thomas was trying to communicate to us was that we, like not even just as like American Christians, but I think even us here in our context, in our communities, in our circles, uh, in the paths that we run, uh, there is this temptation to uh, be too big for your britches, to maybe uh, start to think a little bit too highly of ourselves. And it's interesting because that thought, that um, Thomas ended with last week segues really well, which kind of makes that like the prequel to this message, which is the sequel, which is where we're going to spend most of our time today. As, we've, uh, as we are starting to close out the book of Galatians, we're seeing that like Paul has made a pretty compelling case to the people here in Galatia that the ones who have taught that circumcision was super necessary to basically become a super Jesus follower, he's made a very compelling and at times really passionate case that these people have led like entire churches and definitely individuals within them astray and that they've caused them to believe wrong things about Jesus and they've led them in wrong ways of following Jesus. Um, and then you just you know, consider the fact that like there were, there were a few dudes that had to get unnecessarily circumcised. Like this is, this is something that's going to incite some pretty you know, upset Galatians when you think about it. And so 
you would just imagine that after writing all of this passionate literature saying like these people have led you astray, they've told you the wrong thing, they've actually hurt you and they've hurt your relationship with God, you'd think there are people who are in the audience of the Galatian church who are hearing this stuff for the first time, who are like sharpening their pitchforks and getting their torches ready and they're ready to run these people out of town, right? because they've completely dishonored the entire gospel that makes up our existence. But Paul actually says something very opposite to that. He kind of hits them with a curveball. What Paul actually says is, you guys are so infatuated with this idea of a law. Here's a law that you should follow. Follow the law that Jesus gave us when he said, I give you a new command. Love each other as I love them. Or like they, they've been so convinced to like uh, uh, put these unnecessary burdens on their shoulders, adding all of these rituals and customs. Paul is in a sense saying, if you really want a burden, here's a burden that you can bear. Bear your brother. Bear the person right next to you. Bear your sister. Carry them through their difficulties. And rather than exposing and condemning and judging and blasting are those who have lost their way. Actually, we seek to gently restore them back to the faith. It reminds me, uh, Thomas last week used the quote, I think it's a Luther quote, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. It reminds me of that. God doesn't need us to put these extra burdens of law and custom and, and X, Y, and Z on our shoulders, but what God does need us to carry is the person next to us. What God needs us to bear are the burdens of those who have lost their way. And so that leads us to a few points that I'd like to make. And, uh, and we'll start with our first one here. The Christian that stands is not better than the Christian that falls. I'll say that again. The Christian that stands is not better than the Christian that falls. I'm going to pause. Jesus told a story to, uh, to his followers about two people who came up to the temple to pray, and one of them was a Pharisee. And, you know, we get this idea that this Pharisee was built up with all of this, you know, kind of religious pride. And he said, oh, God, thank you for all that you've given me. But most of all, Father, thank you that I am not this uh, boot-licking like spineless, like no values worm like this tax collector. Thank you that I'm not that guy. And then the tax collector, you know, not even able to lift his eyes to God, but just humbly kind of says, have mercy on me for I'm a sinner. And Jesus implies very strongly, he says it clearly, that the one of these two individuals who was like actually in a good light before God was not the, the righteous man who saw himself as higher than the person next to him, but the one who with humility understood just his actual standing before God. And we have, I think, a lot that we've inherited since then. I, I, I would actually push against anyone who said, oh, yeah, I'm nothing but a sinner. I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I'm such a bad person. No, I would say you actually have so much more. God has not just given you blessings in your life, but God has actually changed your very nature. You can stand before God as a child 
and as someone who is loved by him. But for us to uh, throw off this uh, sinner title, but continue to hold it over those who sin in different ways than us, is to completely miss the point and basically to play the Pharisee instead of the tax collector. It's so interesting that like one of the most fundamental beliefs that we have as Christians, like literally a, a sociologist could study this about our religion completely separate from, from the faith itself. They would recognize that one of the fundamental beliefs of Christianity is the acknowledgement that we are very prone to mess things up. That we gra- like naturally do not gravitate towards perfection, but oftentimes we do the wrong thing, that there is a standard and we don't meet it. That is like fundamental Christianity. For us to come before God, before Jesus, we have to acknowledge at the bare minimum that Jesus, I don't meet the standards that I ought to. And yet, it it still seems like we, we exist in these circles where we kind of expect each other to walk perfectly. And when somebody has the gall, the gall to honestly express their sins and struggles or to let them be visible to others, then many of us are quick to look down and to judge and to critique. The honest truth is we should be honest and open about our struggles with others so that we can build each other up but we're, so, we're still very much caught in this culture that says that even if you can't say you're perfect, you at least have to look like you're perfect. And that's just, it literally is a square peg in the circle of our faith. It makes no sense. It doesn't fit. My uncle Walter is a, is a dude I love and respect a lot. He's on the dad, my dad's side of my family. He's, he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. And uh, those of you who uh, went with me to our, our, our Lake Charles uh, relief trip last year got to stay in his house. I love my Uncle Walter. My Uncle Walter smokes probably about six cigars a day. He can tell you the difference between a Colombian cigar and a Costa Rican cigar and a Cuban cigar. Maybe I shouldn't announce that to the internet. Sorry, Uncle Walter. Um, my Uncle Walter has speakers set out in like every Uh, room of the house so that you're always hearing smooth jazz no matter where you go. My uncle Walter is a, is a, is a top, top, top five dude. I love him a lot. My uncle Walter though, when he was a young man, he had a lot of very, very difficult demons and struggles and addictions that he had to work through. And my uncle Walter, much like most of my dad's family was raised in the church. And so as he had these demons and addictions that he had to work through, He recognized that he needed something outside of him to help get him through and to like triumph and find some kind of recovery. And by God's grace, my Uncle Walter found a place where he was given community and love and accountability and support and grace. And you know where that place was? Anonymous meetings. It wasn't the church. It was anonymous meetings. 
And here's the thing. I have no beef with anonymous meetings. I don't. I know the service that they provide. I know they've been very helpful to others. But my uncle literally left the church because he knew that when it came time for his burdens to be borne by the people there, by the so-called religious folk, as my uncle Walter would say, he knew they weren't going to be there for him. So we found someone who was. And the sad thing is that these anonymous uh, groups that, again, I have no problem with, and I, I would put no shame on anyone who's ever gone through them, these anonymous groups are implementing biblical concepts. Like they're using like traits and values that we find within our own text. They didn't make this up. It's like someone breaking into your house, stealing your apple pie recipe and using that recipe to win at the county fair. Do you know how distressing that would be? This is my recipe. What are you going to do? My second point is that we need each other. We need each other. I heard a great analogy that tried to break down uh, this concept of what it looks like to bear one another's burdens. And it said it's like a rich man who has a friend who's, who's very poor and no longer has the financial well-being to uh, pay their own way, to, to, to provide for themselves. And so this rich man gives money to this poor person, not because he thinks he's better, but because he knows that at the turn of the tide, maybe he's the person in that situation, and he's the one who needs help, who needs support. It implies that like we as a church are meant to actually stand beside each other as we struggle with not just differences, but actual sin. Like this is not just a kumbaya, it's okay to disagree with each other passage. It's literally saying when your brothers are sinning against you, when you have legitimate beef and offense that you are carrying, scars that you have to show, the response is not to take the sword and cut the branch away, but to seek to heal it and restore it back to health. Because we see each other as valuable and we see each other as loved by God. There's a passage in Hebrews uh, chapter 10. I know I've, I, I, I return to this passage fairly often, but I, I find it really, really meaningful. Hebrews 10 Verses 24 and 25, if you'd like to follow along with me. Or actually, I'll do, I'll do 23 as well. It says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is a very clear depiction of one of the great values of the church, which is to take care of the church. What I said when we all came together and I was talking about the adoration scripture, that was true. Church is not just a movie theater that we sit in for an hour and try to not fall asleep during the sermons. Church is actually a thing that we are experiencing every moment of every day. If we are believers, we are all stitched together like conjoined twins. Like there is something about like rising and falling together. God wants us to take care of each other, even when we are slipping into sin. 
which means that there is no place in this model, in this understanding of church for gossip, for backbiting, for trash talk, for, for even just looking down on others. That's not how we respond to sin in the church. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying, gently, gently seek to restore each other. And I love what he continues to say in the, uh, in the third and fourth verses of this passage. He says, be careful that you think that you're something when you're actually nothing. Meaning, if you think that you're hot stuff because you can look at the people next to you and see that you're, you know, uh, 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 you know quantifiably better, then that itself is proving that you may actually have less righteousness than you think that you do. Because we don't stand on the shoulders of others to gain more love and affection from God. If we think that we're better because we see others beneath us, then we have a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means to not just bear each other's burdens, but to live as believers. Like, here's the thing. I mean, we've recognized on, on multiple occasions that Mission Church, this very church right here, has a very distinct kind of culture to it. Many of us have come from, you know, we could probably stretch a, a, a roll of paper from this wall to this wall of the church backgrounds that we've all come from, each one distinct and different from the other. Many of us have had blessed experiences, you know, great, great, you know, Glory to God for those experiences, and many of us have had a lot of really lousy ones. We could fill a book about the ways that different churches have, have maybe like left sour tastes in our mouths, or even at worst, hurt us, made our walks with Jesus that much more difficult and strained. So if we recognize this, if we recognize that the church has come for too many people, that the church for too many people has become this place that is identified with, with abusive leadership and with uh, uh, hurtful cultures, then why would we not strive as much as we can to not be that for someone else? It's not easy to bear the burdens, and the sins of others, but it is what we're supposed to do. If we truly desire to be countercultural, that's a word, such a weird buzzword, countercultural. But if we really want to be countercultural, don't look at one side and say, I will counter that. And don't look at this side and say, I will counter that. Maybe look at the whole and realize that we are currently entering into one of the most polarizing one of the most like antagonistic cultures, like probably in American history. I don't know. I'm not that smart about history, but I just, I think that's probably right. We're entering this like harshly antagonistic culture where stones are constantly getting thrown from one side to the other. If you really want to be counter to the culture, especially for the sake of Christ, then learn how to love both sides. Learn how to love not just those who are erring within your camp, but especially those who are erring on the outside. That is what actual love 
looks like, when it's not just convenient because you're just loving the people who are close to you, but when you're loving those who are far and are also offensive to you. That's real counterculture. And, and here's the thing, like when, when Paul represents this, he says those who are spiritual to restore those back to the faith, which implies that, and I, and I genuinely believe this, that not all of us may be called for the act of restoration. Maybe someone sins in your circle and your job isn't to be the one who's, you know, walking them back. But maybe if you're on the peripherals like that, you should be praying. You should be considering how to support those who are. But you certainly shouldn't be playing on the other team, right? Let's see. My third point is the new commandment. The new commandment. I love this passage from Jesus. I mean, I love, I love this whole passage from, from Galatians 2. But in John 13, 34, Jesus says, I give you a new commandment. And it's so great because in this passage from Galatians, we have these people who are just like, who have no idea how to properly apply the commandments to their lives. They think you're still supposed to get circumcised when you're not supposed to get circumcised. They're still doing stuff they're not supposed to. And Jesus is saying to all of that, or actually Paul is saying and pointing them back to Jesus. And Jesus says, here's a commandment. You want a commandment? No, no, for real. Do you want a commandment? Okay, stop uh, circumcising your children and, and, and dressing strangely and, and, com- and, and committing to all of these culturally obscure holidays and customs. If you really want a commandment, try this one on for size. Love each other. And don't just love each other in a way that you can try to figure out. Love each other just like I love you and just like I love the person that you're loving. So here's the thing. Half of the points that I've made so far, I'm perfectly aware. This, uh, this, this could easily have been copy and pasted from some kind of conflict resolution course that uh, you know, your HR department put on. Like, I'm fully aware of that. I promise I, I didn't copy and paste this from any conflict resolution courses. But I recognize that when we take it just for like the morals behind it, that's 100% what this looks like. And so I want to distinguish it very clearly and say this is not just a do better message. But first, we have to recognize that the reason we are extending this kind of grace and this kind of love towards those who have not met the expectations that God has for them is because that is how Jesus deals with us. That is the kind of love that is literally at the core and nucleus of the gospel. That when we mess up, and we do regularly, Jesus doesn't tear us down. He doesn't throw us out when we are cruel to him, and we are. But he encourages us when we need help, and he helps us oftentimes when we're way too blind to even ask for it. I heard this story of a, uh, of a young man who was a Muslim who um, converted to Christianity, uh, when it first happened, his family was very, like, kind of antagonistic. They had some pretty, you know, clear cultural taboos about Christianity. So many of them disengaged from this young man. But when his father got terminally ill 
uh, his father and him tried to kind of reconcile their relationship. And over time, he started walking his father through a number of stories from the Bible to kind of just show him like, dad, this is what I believe now. This is how it's different from Islam, you know, kind of going into that. And he told the story of when his father first heard the story of the prodigal son, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with, but, you know, young dude takes his inheritance, goes and wastes it, and then comes back basically with his hands out. And the father, like, wept when he heard the story because the whole time he thought that the story was a grand setup for the son coming back to his father and his father killing him for dishonoring the family. But when his father embraced him and forgave him and showed him love and affection and, th- and to say, I'm, we're gonna throw a party, we're gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna have a great time to celebrate that my son is here. The, the father like, was just overwhelmed with emotion because it was such a curveball that he didn't expect. And I love the prodigal son because that's the story that all of us have promised to us. All of us in so many ways have not met this expectation of taking the inheritance of life and not used it to honor our father. And yet we have this promise that he will come to us and love us and be kind to us and build us back up. But guys, when we, are, when we accept that story for ourselves, but then we deprive that story of others. We prefer the the, the prodigal son that gets murdered by his father and not the one who receives love and kindness and forgiveness. We have to be clear of how the way we view sinners around us, it should really be a reflection of how God views us. So this could land in a bunch of different ways for you guys, and I want you to explore that for yourselves when we have our our confession and prayer time. Um, Because maybe the the Christians who you have a problem forgiving are, uh, you know, some cringy Facebook group. I've been there. I understand. You know, there's no no shame in that. Uh, Maybe it's, it's people who live in the peripherals of your life, people who you just kind of see on the outskirts, but who holds to values that you just completely find offensive. Or maybe it's actually someone who offended you in your life. Someone who, you know, wounded you and you just don't know how to really respond to that. And so rather than reconcile because you don't know how or show grace because you don't know how, you can just kind of simmer in these feelings of superiority and kind of let these feelings be a band-aid for the wounds that aren't really healing. Here's, here's the thing, guys. If we're believers in, in Jesus, we live in almost this like world that is disconnected from the rest of existence. It's a world where we are, in every moment of every day, covered head to toe with grace. Like we can find grace in our triumphs, we can also find grace in our sufferings. We can find grace in the wounds that pierce us because they can remind us of our Savior who was also pierced. So we have cups that are overflowing with goodness from a God who loves us. Let's, let's share it. Let's share the goodness that we receive. 
Let us bear each other's burdens. So again, I don't want us to receive this as this like try harder sermon. I don't want everyone to walk away from this being like, all right, God, do better. God, do better. God, try harder. God, just like, God, just really, gotta, gotta get myself hyped up to love people that I don't like. Like, that's not it. If, if, the, if the message of this, if, if the takeaway from this sermon is that you guys possess this power to do better, that you just have to like figure out and unlock and transcend, then I've completely failed you. So here's where I actually wanna, wanna end. This is not a try hard sermon. This is certainly not an I'm trash sermon. Those are not great. Here's the thing. The life of believers is a life of striving and oftentimes failure. I feel like good works can often feel like uh, collecting coins from the floor of a really deep swimming pool. I'm not a great swimmer, so maybe you guys don't resonate with this, but I imagine just like that feeling of pressure that builds up when you get lower and lower. You know, you scrape up a few coins, push yourself up back to the surface, take a deep breath, go back down. You're exhausted very quickly. You're feeling that fatigue of like, I'm not getting enough oxygen, but I'm also, my whole body's working really hard. And you're just like, I can't do this for very long. That's how it feels. But my encouragement is, don't do it by yourself. Don't go into this kind of situation alone. In uh, the last passage that I'll read for us tonight, it comes from John chapter 15, verse 5. Some of you guys might know it. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. Guys, Jesus knew exactly how difficult the task of striving for good things was when he set us on it. That's why he promised to not send us by ourselves. The gospel that we believe in is not a gospel of a bunch of people who aren't great trying to do really good things to impress some invisible dude in the sky. The gospel is the great, like, coming down of God to not just die on a cross, to not just walk in the garden with Adam and Eve, to not just chill in the temple with the Israelites, but to walk with every believer through every moment of every day because he cares for them, because he cares for all of us. So let's remember that. Let's remember this good, beautiful gospel. And I, I can think of no better way to uh, truly remember the presence that Jesus and that the Father and that the Holy Spirit have with every believer than to go from this message into the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper gives us this opportunity to experience not just this remembrance, not just this memorial of Jesus and what he did, but to actually experience it, to actually experience this great pinnacle of our faith, the death and resurrection of Jesus. I read a quote from a director, a director that I really like, actually, and, uh, and he was in a, a movie premiere. I think it was one of his own films. And he, he said afterwards that he felt cinema was one of the last forms of communion that exist. And I think that's a fascinating quote for a lot of reasons I won't get into. But in his mind, he was like, this idea of sitting with others 
and experiencing something together was so intimate and so beautiful, he could only think to compare it to communion. And I think, well, one, I don't agree that it's one of the last forms that we have left because that is the gift that all of us have today, that we can come and together, as those who believe in the promises that Jesus has made for us, those of us who are striving to resist sin, but not standing on our own strength, but only on his, that we would come and we would experience the goodness of God and his presence with us today. Jesus, who truly and perfectly bears each of our burdens so well, so well. So now what we're going to do is uh, we're going to do a time of confession. And what that looks like is uh, basically we want to create a, a space and a time for all of us to respond to the sermon today. And uh, so that, that looks like silence. So I'm going to pray for all of us. And then we're going to make two minutes of complete silence where we each have the opportunity to just come before God. And this is a time to, to, to kind of examine ourselves. Life is busy Phones are attractive. It's very easy to not take that two minutes of quiet time. So we're going to take it all together right now. And I would ask you guys to explore your hearts, to see what you just feel the need to communicate to Jesus, or maybe just, just, just celebrate the, the, the idea that Jesus is walking with us.